Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 408, recorded on Sunday the 19th of March 2023. Really looking for some new hosts, I'm Joe. Since I have nothing better to do today, I'm Moss. First up in the news, meet Ubuntu Flatpak Remix. KDE Plasma 6 begins, no peaking, vanilla goes to Debian, LibreAlpha 7.4.6, Nitrix goes shh, elementary updates, DuckDuckGo goes AI on Wikipedia, Debian gets new apt, Proton joins fight against censorship, Firefox 111 features, Kali 2023.1 released, and Wine.8.4 Wine with Old Wayland released. In security and privacy, Brave needs no permission to do Google, NordVPN open sources their code. Then in our wandering, we are posting no bills this episode, and Joe and I are doing our usual garbage. In our innards section, Joe talks FFmpeg. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. The news. KDE Plasma 6 begins from pointystick.com. This week, the master branch of Plasma-aligned software repos have been ported to Qt6. Work is ongoing, but the actual changeover is happening very quickly, and adventurous people are able to run Plasma 6 in a usable state already. This builds on years of work to port old code away from deprecated APIs and libraries that was just quietly happening in the background all along, pushed along by people like Nicholas Fella, Friedrich Kossebau, Volker Krauss, and many others. It can be fairly thankless and boring-looking work, but it's incredibly important and the foundation of how quickly this technical transition has been able to happen. So I find myself feeling quite optimistic about our chances of shipping a solid and high-quality Plasma 6 this year. Plasma 5.27 continues to be maintained and bug-fixed. There is now an option to change the visual intensity of the outline drawn around Breeze decorated windows or to disable them entirely. Currently, this is slated to be released in Plasma 6, but they're considering backporting it to 5.27 as well. The new portal-based OpenWith dialog is no longer used by non-portal using apps. They now get the older dialog again. This is still the future design direction, but they plan to roll the new dialogue out again, only once it has all the features of the old dialogue so that nothing is lost in transition. Notifications in the history pop-up are now sorted chronologically rather than by a somewhat difficult-to-understand combination of type and urgency. The way sizes and positions of KDE app windows are remembered for multi-screen setups is now fundamentally more robust, so you should see fewer circumstances of windows having the wrong size and position when using multiple screens, especially when the specific screens change. It's now possible to directly delete items that are already in the trash, and many bug fixes. Yeah, nothing we really need to add to that. Yeah, I'm not a big KDE user, but I, I go for it when my options are that or GNOME or XFCE. Yeah, well, yeah, they used to be my backup. If I wasn't going to go for Mint, I was going to go for KDE, but that, that's been kind of a long time. But, um, okay, I'll start on the next one. Linux GIF Recorder Peak Discontinued by Developer from OMG Ubuntu. In, uh, in an announcement posted on Peak's GitHub page, the application's developer 
Philip Wolfer explains their reasons for winding down the project, which hasn't seen any major feature update in over two years. While I am happy the UI worked as it did, there are too many technical challenges with it that I think Peaks UI has no future. Many of these have to do with how Wayland changed the applications are being handled. Detailing the specific challenges presented by the arrival of GTK4 and Wayland challenges that are too great to overcome with Peak in its current state. Philip concludes that the changes needed would benefit from a new project with a new UI and a clean slate. Sadly, there's something they say they have no interest in doing. The deprecation of Peak is definitely a loss for the wider Linux app ecosystem. It was a well-built app with an effective design that filled a gap in the market. Current versions of the um, app will continue to work until they don't. I haven't used this, have you? No, I haven't. I haven't made a, a, a GIF in a long time. Okay. Uh, I haven't really seen the need. I just steal other people's GIFs. Well, I just realized that my mic mute doesn't work. <laughs> we'll get around to why later. Ah, okay. Vanilla I keep getting OS logged two. out on this. Hmm. Vanilla OS 2 goes to Debian from Vanilla OS Org. After discussions and considerations, Vanilla OS decided to move away from Ubuntu and base the distribution on Debian SID. For this reason, the version name and codename were changed, starting with 2.0 ORCID, as Vanilla derives from ORCIDs. Why the switch to Debian SID? It's closer to vanilla experience than in Ubuntu. There were efforts to revert Canonical's opinion. There were efforts to revert Canonical's opinionated workflow, but it was time-consuming. It forced us to focus on reverting these changes. Ubuntu provides a modified version of the GNOME desktop, which does not match how GNOME envisions its desktop. One of the high-level goals of Vanilla OS is to be as vanilla as possible, so they reverted many of these changes to reach that goal. There is no strong opinion on application distribution. Snap is the primary method to get apps on Ubuntu. Based on our testing and many sources online, there are a lot of issues that Snap hasn't addressed currently, like slow startup, centralization, etc. They prefer to push open and cross-organization efforts like Flatpak. The switch to Debian SID will also address a core issue brought to us by many in the community, that most native applications installed in APX's Ubuntu container are a Snap transitional package, which doesn't work inside the container. They get more flexibility in releasing updates with the Switch. They didn't have as much flexibility in publishing vanilla OS releases before as they needed to follow Ubuntu's release cadence. And they're already familiar with Deb packages and Debian. Updates will be released whenever they're deemed ready or when it is essential or critical, like security updates. Some issues with rebasing to a rolling release model and using it as a point release model are increasing security risks and potentially decreasing stability. They decided to limit the number of packages shipped directly to the user as much as possible to decrease the overall footprint. Vanilla OS provides a small base, excluding A slash B partitions, and strongly encourages alternative technologies like APX, DistroBox, Nix, and Flatpak. They will be referring to Debian security advisories. Likewise, for stability, the limited amount of core packages shipped to the user means they will only be testing the base image as it is the only one officially supported. And if stability and security issues are run into down the line, then they will reconsider this decision. Have you used Vanilla OS 2? I haven't, but I think uh, either Dale or uh, Josh has, and we'll be reporting on it soon. Okay, okay. 
I, I know nothing about it, so. All right, release of LibreOffice 7.4.6 Community Edition. This is from documentfoundation.org. March 9th, 2023, the Document Foundation announces the release of LibreOffice 7.4.6 Community. The sixth minor release of LibreOffice 7.4 Family. The new release is immediately available from, then there's a link in the show notes, and it'll have uh, Mac OS and Linux on there as well, as well as Windows and ARM processors. LibreOffice claims to offer the highest level of compatibility in the Office Suite market segment with native support for the open document format, beating proprietary formats for security and robustness to superior support for MS Office files to filters for a large number of legacy document formats to return ownership and control to users. Yeah, well, I do use LibreOffice quite often. And I don't. It is my go-to. And I don't need to talk yeah. about that anymore. You're, 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 you're an open office user? No, no? I'm, I'm a uh, SoftMaker office Soft user. SoftMaker office. Okay. Very proprietary, but a lot cheaper than Microsoft. That's true. And they've supported Linux since 2012. Okay. Do you want to catch All right. More? Okay, release of Nitrux 2.7 SH. Yes, it's just SH. They don't want to talk about it. From nxos.org, Nitrux 2.7.0 SH is available to download March 6, 2023. The 6.1.15-1 Liquorix kernel is now the default in the distribution. KDE Plasma goes to version 20 uh, goes to version 5.25.2. I didn't read that right again. KDE Plasma to version 5.27.2, KDE Frameworks to version 5.103.0, and KDE Gear to version 22.12.3. Firef Firefox moves to version 110.0.1. They updated Mesa to version 23.1 tilde git 230-305060.af9536 tilde OIBAF tilde L dot. They added OpenVPN. They added Open ICSCI. ISCSI. Oh boy. ISCSI. ISCSI. Yeah. Updated the NVIDIA proprietary driver to version 525.89.02. And multiple bug fixes. And all, no, all, all this explanation here, and, and I don't... What is Nitrix? Nitrix is a completely different way of putting Linux together. Um, they use the MAUI format uh, for their Plasma. It's, it's, they have a whole new desktop that they made, but it's on top of Plasma using, using MAUI. Okay. And it's really confusing to think about. It installs differently than anything else. And I know people that rave about it. Okay. Elementary 7 updates. This is from blog.elementary.io. On March 6th, Danielle 4 announced the first... 4A. 4A announced the first round of updates to Elementary OS 7 including both great feature updates and a long list of fixes for reported issues. Work is prioritized based on user feedback. The new files release features the new app menu in the header bar. Jeremy put together this menu to better improve discoverability for features like Zoom and Undo Redo, as well as to clean up old folder context menus. The Undo and Redo buttons include tooltips, 
showing what operation will be performed before you click them, and they also updated the description for the double-click setting to make it more clear. They also fixed a number of reported issues, including some off-click behavior above and below text in the list view, case sensitivity in file path completion, and issues with MTP and PTP devices that have a colon in their name. Plus, they reworked how the file chooser handles typing focus when saving. The network indicator has been getting some major design attention and now offers a much better experience for using VPNs. Most options now appear as circular toggle buttons with icons instead of a list of switches. This new design both saves space on devices with complex network configuration and shows the status of your various connections much clearer, including intermediate and <clears throat> error states. In the case of VPNs, you can now also activate multiple connections at once. They've also added quick access to toggle airplane mode, including a middle click action in the indicator icon. Plus, they're now using a feature of Network Manager to automatically get better device names, so you'll rarely see long and cryptic device names any longer. And you may notice some subtly improved icons, like a slightly larger Wi-Fi icon with rounded edges. This release of the Window Manager contains over a dozen fixes for reported issues thanks to Leo's hard work. This includes things like performance improvements and smoother animations, fixes for issues with shadows, improved ability to optionally disable animations, <coughs> better handling of keyboard shortcuts in multitasking view, and lots of code cleanup, plus a fix that avoids accidentally closing windows when using three-finger multi-touch gestures. Reading the full release notes is strongly recommended because this is a big one. <clears throat> App Center received a new Flatpak repair feature thanks to Marius, which fixes an issue where some Flatpak runtimes could not be installed. Plus, the updates page sh now shows a small message when everything is up to date, including the last time that App Center checked for updates. And thanks to the hard work of Marco and Gustavo, our portals, things like the App Chooser and Access dialogues, have now been ported to GTK4. So that's a large update for Elementary 7. Yeah. I, I might eventually get off my high horse and try it again. Hmm. It was nice having Danny on the show. Yeah. And this was put out March 6th. So was that before or after? Uh, it was before the last show, but we didn't get the notice until uh, on the thir 13th. Okay. All right. DuckDuckGo unveils new Wikipedia AI summary bot from Ars Technica. Not to be left out of the rush to integrate generative AI into search, on March 8th, DuckDuckGo announced DuckAssist, an AI-powered factual summary service powered by technology from Anthropic and OpenAI. It is available for free as a wide beta test for users of DuckDuckGo's browser extensions and browsing apps. Being powered by an AI model, the company admits that Duck Assist might make stuff up, but hopes it will happen rarely. Here is how it works. If a DuckDuckGo user searches a question that can be answered by Wikipedia, Duck Assist may appear and use AI natural language technology to generate a brief summary of what it finds in Wikipedia, with source links listed below. The summary appears above DuckDuckGo's regular search results in a special box. The company positions Duck Assist as a new form of instant answer, a feature that prevents users from having to dig through web, 
web search results to find quick information on topics like news, maps, and weather. Instead, the search engine presents the instant answer results above the usual list of websites. Okay, now the, the whole might make stuff up, but it'll happen rarely, but you'll never know when it happens thing. That, 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 that is a little bothersome. And yes, they have had a lot of problems with ChatGPT, which is based on OpenAI. Right now, eventually, as um, you know, time goes on and people use it more, it should more often get correct answers as opposed to randomly making things up. Mm, that hasn't been the case in the, uh, that hasn't been uh, the case in Edge's use of it. The, <laughs> that has that hasn't been the case where people have actively been trying to do horrible things to the AI. The AI needs to be trained to block horrible things. Right. It needs to, to learn. Right. It needs to learn not to feed the trolls under the bridge. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing to, you know, teach an AI. Well, the next one's a big one, Joe. Okay. Uh, I still don't think I'd want to use an AI bot like that to, to actually get answers that I use in anything. But um, a new version of Apt coming to Debian. This is from theregister.com. The forthcoming Bookworm release of Debian version 12 will include a new version of the Apt packaging tools with better handling of non-free software. Debian releases are given code names from the Toy Story series of movies. Bookworm, if you're curious, was a minor antagonist from Toy Story 3. Debian 13 will be Trixie, and Debian 14 will be Forky. The apt packaging system is probably the best feature in Debian, as a commentator already observed back in 2004. Apt is remarkably stable. The new release will be only version 2.6.0. Apt first arrived in Debian 2.1 Slink in 1999, and it has been a slow-moving and pretty stable project ever since. It took 15 years to reach version 1.0, released on April Fool's Day in 2014. Apt 1.0 was also the version where the apt command first appeared, followed by its incorporation into Ubuntu 14.04. For comparison, automatic dependency resolution came to the Red Hat family when Fedora Core 1 included Yum, co-developed by late Seth Vidal in 2003. It was replaced with DNF in Fedora 22 in 2015. Before this, installing a moderately complex package on Red Hat Linux was a nightmarish process that could involve retrieving and manually installing many dozens of dependencies, and was always fun. The fixes in the new release are relatively modest. There's some refinement to the Czech language translation, some tweaks to the copying file to include some additional licenses and better handling of the changelog subcommand. The main change relates to handling of non-free firmware, which is Debian's term for the proprietary firmware blobs, binary large objects, that are needed for a lot of modern hardware to work. We have examined the problems of proprietary firmware before, as well as the impacts upon the Debian project in particular. In essence, the increasing prevalence of proprietary firmware is due to industry-wide cost cutting. It's cheaper to use a non-dedicated general purpose chip running some small specialized program to enable it to do its job than it is to design, implement, and build bespoke custom hardware to do the same job. That leads to a problem. 
Your computer may not work fully until the operating system has downloaded various of these blobs in, into its various network interfaces, its GPU, and so on. That in turn means that if the boot medium for which you install the computer doesn't include this firmware, then the new OS, new OS may not be able to connect to the internet and go online to fetch what it needs. As a result, Bookworm will be the first ever Debian release to include non-free firmware as standard. This is quite a big deal, and some of the changes involved are still working their way down the software stack. Even though this release is already part of the way through the stage process of feature freeze. Yeah, we no longer have to deal with dependency hell, which was always fun back in the day. Don't get me wrong, just I have better things to do with my time. Mm. Yeah, I had a little bit of problem with formatting on the next article. I fixed it. I hope it didn't mess up your screen. I did. It jumped. But at least I wasn't trying to read when it jumped. Right. I appreciate that. Okay. I hope you found it again. Yep. Meet Ubuntu Flatpak Remix. Ubuntu with Flatpak support pre-installed. From 9to5 Linux via Londoner. That was fast after Canonical's announcement that future Ubuntu releases won't include Flatpak support by default that we discussed in our last episode. Someone already made an unofficial Ubuntu flavor that ships with support for Flatpak apps pre-installed and working out of the box, called Ubuntu Flatpak Remix. An unofficial Ubuntu derivative that doesn't feature support for Snap apps and comes with support for Flatpak apps working out of the box. Several key apps are pre-installed in the Flatpak format rather than as a Snap app, including the Mozilla Firefox web browser, Mozilla Thunderbird email client, and LibreOffice Office Suite. A recent version of the Mesa graphics stack, 22.3.5, is installed as well for gamers. The best part of this approach is that these pre-installed Flatpak apps are in their latest versions, especially the LibreOffice 7.5 Office Suite. The upstream Ubuntu 22.04.2 LTS release doesn't come with the latest LibreOffice version, but an old and unsupported one, namely LibreOffice 7.3. Support for the FlatHub portal is installed as well, so you're able to install more apps with just a few clicks. Quote, the Flatpak remix of Ubuntu features the awesome GNOME desktop with Canonical's attention to detail, unchanged from the standard release, said Ubuntu Flatpak's remix creator Jay LaCroix. While the standard release of Ubuntu features support for snap packages built in with this distribution, with this distribution, the focus is on Flatpak instead. End quote. The developer of Ubuntu Flatpak Remix, also known for his Learn Linux TV channel on YouTube and Ubuntu Server Books, that note from Londoner, notes the fact that his derivative wasn't created due to some sort of grudge against Canonical or the Snappak format but as a solution for Ubuntu fans who don't like snaps and prefer flat packs. So there you have it. If you don't want to go through all the trouble of removing snap support from Ubuntu and installing flat pack and flat hub support, you can download Ubuntu flat pack remix right now from the official website by clicking on the link below. However, please note that this is an alpha version that may come with bugs. So it's not recommended to be used for production. Also, let's hope that future versions will be based on newer Ubuntu releases, such as the upcoming Ubuntu 23.04 Lunar Lobster. And we have links in the show notes and a YouTube video linked. Yeah, I love how they had to specifically say that, you know, this isn't a middle finger to Ubuntu. Well, it, it seems I know Ubuntu is doing what it has to do because they are getting ready for an IPO and they want all the money they can get. 
um, and snaps are considered to be part of that branding. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Fedora gets a new beta. This is from fedoramagazine.org. On March 10th, the Fedora project announced the availability of Fedora Linux 38 beta, the next step towards a planned Fedora Linux 38 release at the end of April. Fedora 38 workstation beta includes GNOME 44. It's currently in beta, with a final release expected at the end of March. GNOME 44 includes a lot of great improvements, including a new lock screen, a background app section on the quick menu, and improvements to accessibility settings. In addition, Enabling third-party repositories now enables an unfiltered view of applications on FlatHub. Packages are now built with stricter compiler flags that protect against buffer overflows. The RPM package manager uses a Sequoia-based OpenPGP parser instead of its own implementation. If you're profiling applications, you'll appreciate the frame pointers now built into official packages. This makes Fedora Linux a great platform for developers looking to improve Linux application performance. Of course, there's the usual update of programming languages and libraries. Ruby 3.2, GCC 13, LLVM 16, Golang 1.2, PHP 8.2, and much more. Beta testers are needed and greatly appreciated. So yeah, I definitely GNOME 44 is something I'll want to test out probably, you know, when it comes out of beta. But Okay. What, you don't want to test it? We can do it for the show no. again. Didn't we do that for 40? <laughs> Some of us did. I think I begged off on that one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Gnome and I parted ways back with three. Yeah. Well, the, that was, you know, the first time I... I I, I, I went away from it and stayed away from it. But, yeah, I'm willing to try it again. Okay. Well, again, they, they just changed the numbering system. It's really 4.4, not uh, 44. But, oh, well. Ah, moving on. Proton joins the fight against censorship from the Proton VPN blog. Quote, the year 2022 represents a new low when it comes to online access to information and freedom of expression. It was the 12th year in a row that online freedom declined, according to Freedom House's Freedom on the Net report. There were some obvious causes. Since its unjust invasion of Ukraine, Russia has ramped up its censorship efforts. Similarly, the military junta that has taken over Myanmar has reintroduced draconian online censorship, and China remained the world's worst offender for the eighth straight year when it comes to denying its citizens online freedom. But the problem is also widespread. A record 35 countries blocked access to the Internet in 2022, according to Access Now. Many of these countries, like Myanmar and Iran, are run by authoritarian leaders, but the worst offender in 2022 was India, the world's most populous democracy. It imposed over 80 internet blackouts, most of which affected the contested regions of Kashmir and Jammu. This being said, there are some glimmers of hope. According to Freedom House, 26 countries saw their internet freedom improve, including the United States, which is still one of the most influential online spaces globally. There's also been a broader push by everyday people worldwide to fight back against internet censorship. People everywhere are fighting to restore access to the open internet, either in the courts or by downloading and using VPNs to bypass the blocks. For this year's World Day Against Censorship, we'll look at how fighting for a free and open internet is integral to ProtonVPN and the future of censorship. 
Authoritarian governments, including Turkey, Russia, and Belarus, still occasionally attempt to block Proton Mail, but Proton VPN makes it much more difficult. Since 2017, Proton VPN has grown to help millions of people all around the world access crucial information, stay in touch with friends and family, and express themselves in the face of online censorship. This is still a quote. We view the freedom of expression and the freedom of information as vital human rights, and we've worked with anti-censorship organizations worldwide to fight for a free and open internet. This effort has been led by the Proton community. Thanks to your support, we've been able to donate to vital anti-censorship technologies, including WireGuard, Tails, and Tor. You've also enabled us to work with organizations that provide vital support to journalists and fight censorship in all its forms, including sponsoring a Reporters Without Borders journalist digital security program, partnering with RSF, leading a training session with the Second Asian Investigative Journalism Conference in Kathmandu, Nepal, partnering with Deutsche Welle, supporting Access Now, and supporting NetBlocks. None of this would have been possible without the support and generosity of the Proton community. Every person that subscribes to a paid plan helps fund our work that is providing vital internet access. It's thanks to you that we have been able to stand up for online freedoms in Hong Kong, Russia, and other authoritarian countries. <coughs> we hope every member of the Proton community is proud of the work they've enabled. We launched Proton VPN in 2017, roughly three years after we launched our end-to-end -end encrypted email service, Proton Mail. We launched Proton Mail in response to the Snowden revelations that exposed a global mass global system of mass surveillance. As an end-to-end -end encrypted email service that could protect people's messages, ProtonMail became popular with journalists worldwide who used it to com communicate with their sources. In many places with authoritarian governments, ProtonMail ended up getting blocked. This gave us the idea to launch ProtonVPN. End quote. It is also noted that another VPN provider, Moldad, has been blanketing Sweden with pro-privacy anti-censorship ads in English and Swedish. <clears throat> yeah, I just kind of want to mention here that uh, people, you might not have anything to hide, but you do have everything to protect. So maybe a VPN for general usage is a good idea. Test it and out. And maybe I can talk my wife into uh, going to Unlimited on Proton. Right now we're only paying for mail. Hmm. Well, how much does the, that particular VPN cost? It is more expensive than most, but as I've said many times, only Proton and Mulvad uh, are not, uh, among the major providers, are not owned by a marketing company. Mm. Um, and only Proton VPN, Mulvad, and now in a later news article here, um, or an earlier one, where, where where is it? Oh, it's a later one. Um, we are getting, NordVPN is opening their code. Hmm. Well, I thought PIA, well, okay, they got bought since the last time they went to, to court and refused to, or, or were unable to provide information yeah. to That was before agents. Cape Technologies yeah. bought them, and Cape Technologies is renamed from a pre, uh, prior named malware provider. Right. With heavy influences, heavy, well, both of the uh, lead people in Cape Technologies have uh, Israeli military um backgrounds mm. okay and we're also helped provide the uh the software that supposedly uh decrypted iphones you can tell i'm talking a bit more roughly because i don't ex 
expostulate as well as reading a script. Right, right, right. <laughs> All right, you got an easy one, Joe. All right. Uh, yeah, you had a long one there. It's like I thought I was getting all the long <laughs> ones, and then all of a sudden, yeah. Firefox 111, new features from Mozilla.org. New Firefox Relay users can now opt in to create Relay email masks directly from the Firefox Credential Manager. You must be signed in with your Firefox account. They've added two new locales, Soleil Fur and Sardinian. Okay, Sardinian. Fixed various security fixes, web platform. Use of the rel attribute is now supported on form elements, allowing the specification of the relationship between the current document and the form target in a simpler cross-browser way. Origin private file system access is now enabled. A new storage API that enables web applications to store and retrieve data from and to the file system in a sandbox. I don't think we have any listeners whose main languages are Silhaifreolian or Sardinian, but I could be wrong. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, they'll absolutely hate me for how I butchered those names, but I, I, <laughs> I can live with that. Well, I can't guarantee that Silhe Friolian is right either, but it could be. Okay, Kali Linux 2023.1 release from Kali.org. March 13th release of Kali 2023.1 and on their 10th anniversary is ready for immediate download or updating. Given it's their 10th anniversary, there are a few special things lined up to help celebrate. Read the blog post dated Wednesday 15th, March 2023 at noon UTC for more information. The changelog summary since the 2022.4 release from December. Kali Purple, the dawn of a new era. Kali is not only offense, but starting to be defense. Python changes, Python 3.11 and PIP changes going forward. 2023 theme, our once a year theme update. This time what's old is new again. Desktop updates, SSCE 4.18 and KDE Plasma 5.27. Default kernel settings, what makes the Kali kernel different. New tools, as always, various new tools added. And more information at the link in the show notes, including an in-depth discussion of Kali Purple. And I added another article and forgot to include the article. We have a link in the show notes you can check on Pharonix's listing of Wine 8.4 being released with the early Wayland graphics driver code and 51 bug fixes. Yeah, I thought that was going to be an easy read there for a second. Then I realized there was nothing there. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to do that one. It was a late ad and I didn't finish it. No worries. Mea culpa. Well, that's it for the news. Let's move on to security and privacy. In security, Brave Browser signs Google permission from Brave.com. Starting in version 1.51, Brave will increase user privacy by extending the browser permission system to cover legacy Google sign-in, which needs third-party cookies or other unsatisfactory techniques to allow users to log into sites with their Google account. This new feature will replace Brave's existing option of a global allow or deny setting for handling legacy Google sign-ins. This feature will be available on desktop and Android and is another way Brave is retrofitting best-in-class privacy protections to web APIs that were designed without concern for user privacy. Google, like many popular account-based sites, allows people to use their Google account to log into other sites. 
This feature, sometimes called Single Sign-On SSO, has both security benefits and privacy risks. SSO systems can be helpful in several ways. First, SSO systems are very convenient for users and remove the need to go through often tedious account creation processes on different sites. Second, and more importantly, SSO systems in general, and sign in with Google in particular, can improve user security. Instead of users needing to trust dozens or hundreds of websites with usernames and passwords, sites that may have wide-ranging security practices, users can instead benefit from Google's top-notch security features even on sites not belonging to Google. Example of Google's security bona fides include two-factor authentication, advanced account protection features, and a security team that is among the best in the field, if they haven't laid them off. However, SSO systems can also be harmful to users. For example, the centralized nature of SSO systems means that any flaws can have repercussions across the web. More, revel more relevant to this post, SSO systems can also harm user privacy, depending on how they are built and implemented. SSO systems necessarily involve the SSO provider learning at least something about a user's actions on another site, and many systems allow the SSO provider to learn a great deal of sensitive and private information. In most cases, Brave already protects a user's privacy when they interact with Google sign-in. Unless people intentionally and explicitly use their Google account to log into sites, Brave prevents Google from learning about those sites. However, there are many ways sites can integrate with Google sign-in, the oldest of which relies on unrestricted third-party cookies. To combat this, by default, Brave applies the strongest third-party cookie protections of any popular browser. This has the upside of providing robust best-in-class privacy protections, though with the occasional downside of causing compatibility problems with systems that depend on unrestricted third-party cookies. Starting with version 1.5.1, Brave 1.51, Brave has removed the exception and the global toggle and moved to a permissions-based system. This allows users to control when or if a third-party cookie is sent to Google while still taking advantage of the convenience and security provided by Google Sign-In. If the website already uses the new Google Identity Services for Web Solution, which doesn't use third-party cookies for sign-in, there is no change. Brave's new Google Sign-In permission builds on previous privacy improvements Brave applies to permission handling in Chromium, including the ability to control how long a permission lasts for and a partition permissions in third-party iframes. I want to talk about cookies, now I'm hungry. Well, then you can eat the next article. NordVPN open sources its Linux client and libraries. This is from Bleeping Computer. Nord Security, Nord, has released the source code of its Linux NordVPN client and associated networking libraries in the hopes of being more transparent <coughs> and easing user security and privacy concerns. Yesterday, Nord announced that they were making their NordVPN MeshNet private tunneling feature free for all users who install their software even if they do not have a paid subscription. This feature allows users to create private tunnels between other NordVPN users to access the internet through the shared network or access internal devices such as private game servers. As a part of this announcement, NordVPN released the source code for its Linux applications and two libraries, Libtelio and Libdrop. We're making these products open source as a number, as a sign of our commitment to transparency and accountability, reads Nord's announcement. We want the input and scrutiny of the coding community and to show you that we have confidence in our own software. All three projects are now on Nord Security's GitHub page with full instructions on compiling the NordVPN 
Linux, and libraries. The libdrop library is part of the Nord's MeshNet feature, allowing users to send and receive files over the private tunnel. The other library is the libtelio networking library, which Nord says is heavily used across all Nord VPN applications on all operating systems, is responsible for creating encrypted networks over the MeshNet feature. Open sourcing Libtelio is a particularly important step because this code forms the backbone of all of our Nord VPN applications, not just our Linux client, explains Nord. Putting this material into the hands of the Linux community, one of the strongest open source communities currently active, encourages talented coders and developers to scrutinize our code and make our service better. Finally, the complete source code for the NordVPN Linux application can be downloaded and compiled with the company, encouraging users to modify it to fit their own needs. Nord Security encourages users to scrutinize the source and report any bugs that may be found. Security vulnerabilities in the Linux client may be reported to Nord Security's HackerOne bug bounty program, with bugs rated as critical, receiving bounties ranging from $10,000 to $50,000. Yeah. Well, that's one more open source uh, VPN. Um, we're hoping that open sourcing the code uh, leads to more privacy, uh, especially since Nord is owned by a marketing company. Yeah, well, not just, you know, more privacy, but um, just people being able to audit the code and say it's actually secure. Yeah. Well, that's it for our privacy... <clears throat> privacy and security. Let's move into bi-weekly wanderings. Oh, bi-weekly wanderings should be relatively short this, this, this time around. Looks like we're getting near the bottom of our script. <laughs> Okay, I just got a new microphone, a Samsung Q2U. Hope it sounds good. This is the same mic that Bill has been using and has been recommended by Leo and other people as well. I also got a new EBXYA 2x2 sound box, which will make my podcast sound better and will also allow me to plug my guitar in for some music recording. Uh, Bill helped me get it all set up before yesterday's meeting. I hope it helps. I also, uh, it'll help on my Zoom meetings because... Uh, Zoom tends to block out the side noise, uh, especially on Linux. So I, I had I have to make certain setting changes on Zoom to even get it to hear my guitar when I'm playing on just the one microphone. Whereas now I can plug the guitar into the sound sound card and it'll all be broadcast at the same time. I also got some new wireless earbuds, the Lenovo Think Plus Live Pods LP3 Pro from Timu for $14.48. I think they may be a discontinued model. I can't find them on Amazon. Still, still, the case includes a really nice LED readout as to the charge level. And you can also use the case to charge your phone via USB. Um, I couldn't take all the cuteness of cin cinnamon, plus some things just didn't work right, so I installed Mate. My biggest issue was that I couldn't get access to all my directories to attach files to email, Telegram, or Discord. Not all directories were made available by the file manager. I don't have that problem in Mate. In the past, I would have just started with a fresh installation, but I'm doing that. I've, I've been doing that too much lately, so I just installed Mate Desktop and ran with it. It feels good to be back home. I have deleted the Cinnamon Programs libraries, which felt safe to do. 
which hopefully will speed my updates as I will not have to be updating Cinnamon if I got it right. I will find out in the next big update. Distro Hopper's Digest will be running a bit late this month. Dale has had some issues on the road and has had to extend his work schedule. Current plans are recorded sometime next week. And I've had a few more substitute assignments this time period. More of the kids at the high school know me than I'm comfortable with, LOL. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Joe? Uh, not much has been going on. Um, it's been a couple of weeks of fun. I had ordered a, a different <coughs> USB hub for my docking station that I had built for the 1GX, which is that little laptop. Um, the reason that I ordered one was because the old one would no longer do fast charging on my laptop. So I ordered a different one and it was a different size. Um, I removed the old one, which required removing some glue and tested the new one and it did charge as expected. Um, my laptop, it requires a higher voltage USB-C to stay charged. It's like 15 volts four amps something like that so 60 watt charging so i designed a carrier to add to the dock and i put it back into place um <clears throat> included all in all that jazz and then a day later it no longer works in charging it's actually like two days later but um so that's a, a second one down uh, i want to buy another one and see if the same thing happens with the same device a second time um, otherwise I'm going to have to find something a bit more reliable and probably redo that whole entire, um, the whole bottom piece that I had built. Um, it's annoying, but it's definitely doable and, um, get, getting to, to still, it, it might be fun to redesign the whole thing. I do want to add in like a hard drive or two on the bottom and maybe a couple of other things. But, um, first I'm probably going to reorder the exact same USB-C dock with PD and, and see if it does the same thing again. Um, the mount that I made for it so that I could slip it in and out of the new one is just fine. I mean, um, I did not hard glue that into position. I had just built the, the casing around it and slid it in because I knew something like this might happen and I wanted to test. So I do have another one on order. It should be here today or tomorrow. And I will let you all know how long that one lasts. And if it doesn't, then, um, I will be redesigning and I will take into consideration um, adding in um, like a USB-C M.2 drive and just for the extra storage and seeing how well <clears throat> that will mount to the bottom without blocking airflow. Um, on the last show, I think that I also mentioned uh, the simple foot pedal that I made. It acts as a cover for my Sovereign uh, USB switcher. Um, I think it's really the most useful simple print and design that I have done so far. Uh, I use it constantly when I'm working from home to switch between devices for my mouse and keyboard. It is very simple and it makes my life so much easier just being able to, you know, not have to hunt for the device and hunt for the button on the device to press it. I set it on the floor and it's always in the same spot and I just reach over with my foot and give it a click. Um, it really, really is great. Um, let me know if anyone else out there has a print that they really like. Send me an email, hit me up on Discord, whatever. Now, I think the, the reason that it came to mind is that I did have to reprint it again because there was a flaw in my last print um, with the hinge in the front of the print uh, where it hooks in. And I had to go without it for a couple of hours while I printed a new one after a bit of a redesign. 
But um, it's back up and running, and it's better than ever. Um, I have marked the Tinkercad file as shareable, and I have placed it in the uh, a link to it in the Discord. Now I, I want to write it up a bit more, and then I also need to include links to the Sovereign Switch that I'm using, and then add the whole thing to uh, Thingiverse. I'm not sure how well it'll do, but um, It'll be nice to, you know, just to have a file out there that is my way of giving back to, to Thingiverse for all the things that I've printed from there. Now, um, the other day, uh, I was talking to Dan on um, the Linux Link Tech Show, and he had recently installed KDE to test it out. Uh, so I had suggested to him that um, he also install KDE Connect on his um, phone. Uh, so, I, of course, I was going through my installation of KDE Connect and um, I found out that uh, part of the problem that I was having with KDE Connect was one of my phone settings that was prevent preventing it from working as opposed to a desktop setting. Um, after I switched that setting around, um, now KDE SMS works for me without any issues. Um, I still use G Voice or Google Voice for a lot of my phone messaging though for doing it from my computer and KDE SMS is okay, but uh, having used it now off and on, I can see that it has a lot of issues with loading and it doesn't really load up images and it doesn't really work with emojis. Still, it's um, an easy way to shoot off a quick and simple text from my desktop instead of, you know, having to pull out my phone and get, get it unlocked and everything else. Now, I'm still looking for some, uh, in-ear headphones to work on. Uh, I've been keeping my eye on eBay for lots that I could work on and convert to MMCX in-ears, but I have not found any lots that look interesting. Uh, let me know what your favorite wired in-ears are and if the sound quality is any good. Um, <clears throat> screen jumped again. Okay, uh, but um, okay. I still. I didn't do anything. Joe. I know it's it's my connection. <laughs> it's been it's been doing this off and on for a while now. I still have a set of one of the one mores that sound decent and a couple sets of the level use, but they are wearing out quickly. Um, the one mores, yeah. E e either it's the connection between the um, um, one of the the drivers that's all the way inside because it's a triple driver to all the way back so you're you're you losing a lot of sound either that or one of the the coils on the inside of the speaker is just wearing out so um yeah there's nothing i can do to fix those at that point that isn't going to be much more destructive <clears throat> so i i i and the one mores are just getting harder to find and the used ones, even the broken ones are getting more and more expensive. So I, I, I'm looking for an alternative and the level use. I got, I guess I got really lucky when I got that job lot of them and, and yeah, what can you do? And job hunting sucks. I hate the whole process and this is a terrible time for it, but I need a raise. So I'm looking, uh, most of all, what I'm getting is calls for contract work. Um, but that's, you know, what headhunters try to get you. I need to start applying to things directly. So that is what I'm going to be doing. Um, I'm willing to move, but I'm a bit limited on the locations that I can go. That'll keep the spouse happy. So I, I don't know. We'll see what I can do in the future.
And that's really all I've been up to. Well, I've got a project for you that may require us to give you some money because uh, we've got a couple of humidifiers that we bought last year. I mean, a year ago. Mm-hmm. We use them just fine all winter, put them aside for the summer. Mm-hmm. But when we came to put them back together this winter, it was like they some heat had gotten to them. There's holes in it. It's, it's deformed and everything. And we, if we could get some new tanks made, that would be cool. But that's probably going to cost a whole lot of plastic. Well, yeah, not only that, but um, you're also looking for it to be waterproof. And the problem is, is that most of your, like, 3D printing, it's going to be too porous. And it's not really going Mm. to be waterproof unless I then go and and coat it in another material. And that's where you start getting your expense. Well, I'll send you one of them, and and you can decide to just throw it out and send us the base back when you send the other stuff. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, we'll take a look. Anyhow, we'll, we'll look at that. Uh, well, that's about it for our bi-weekly wanderings. We're moving into Linux innards. Well, this episode, we've had our guts ripped out in sympathy with something Bill is doing. We had been planning on talking about funding an open source and maybe getting a couple of key players on to talk about it, but everything seemed to fall through at the 11th hour, and we needed to switch to a backup topic. So don't be surprised if this isn't up to our usual level of meteor... (laughs) Nice, nice, Joe, nice. If this isn't up to our usual level of mediocrity, and if you want something talked about, please let us know. Right. Take it, Joe. Um, I was uh, actually talking to the guys over on Linux Lugcast to see if they had any ideas on last-minute topics, and one of them suggested picking my favorite command line tool and talking about that. Um, what I actually landed on is a little different, but close, and we'll get into a bit of the command line, and this uh, the topic is going to be FFmpeg. Um, FFmpeg is one of those tools that most people don't think about, but it is a staple to Linux. Uh, So many tools use it in the background in some way, and we don't even realize it. So I'm going to go over some of the history of FFmpeg and some of the places that it is used and also give an example of how I have used it in the recent past. Uh, The focus will not be on how to do all the things on the command line, but I do want to show that it is a powerful and useful tool. Um, A lot of these front ends do make it a lot easier to use it, but um, if you want automation, then there's nothing like going to this tool itself. Now, first uh, bit of definition, FFmpeg is an open source project consisting of libraries and programs that handle video, audio, and multimedia. It is used for video and audio processing, as well as uh, transcoding, editing, and scaling. Um, It is packaged with a couple of other tools, such as FFplay and FFprobe, as well as many useful codecs, like more than 100 codecs. Now, FFplay is a simple command line um, video player, and FFprobe is to get you, um, like, file details. It is at the core of many of the things that we use every day, including, to name a few, VLC, YouTube, Audacity, and Plex, not to mention Chrome and Firefox, 
Cody and Blender, really I could spend all day naming programs that use FFmpeg at some level and someone would still tell me that I missed some important ones. Um, like the one that I find the most interesting, which is the Perseverance rover on Mars that uses it for audio and video compression uh, to send files back to Earth. So yeah, that is... Go Percy! Right, right. <laughs> Uh, Linux on Mars and FFmpeg on Mars to doing compression to send audio and video back. Now, directly from the FFmpeg.org site, it says FFmpeg is a very fast video and audio converter that can also grab from a live audio video source. It can also convert between arbitrary sample rates and resize video on the fly with a high quality polyphase filter. FFmpeg is the leading multimedia framework able to decode, encode, transcode, mux, demux, stream, filter, and playing pretty much anything that humans and machines have created. It supports the most obscure ancient formats up to the cutting edge. No matter if they were designed by some standards committee, committee the community, or a corporation. Which is extremely <coughs> you know, interesting. And now my dog just won't stop barking. Okay, for some history, FFmpeg was started in 2000 by uh, Fabrice Bellard. The name was inspired by uh, MPEG, video standards, and FF, meaning fast forward. It is notable that many of the developers that worked on the early versions of FFmpeg also worked on MPlayer. FFmpeg contains more than 100 codecs that provide compression of one kind or another and is licensed under the LGPL, but we'll switch to the GPL if it is linked against any GPL libraries. Another important thing to mention is the fork of FFmpeg is libav. Libav was forked because of a disagreement between developers and leadership. The project was forked in 2011, but was abandoned in 2018. For the things that I find interesting, um, most video programs include FFmpeg as a part of the video processing pipeline due to its inclusion of the codecs for encoding and decoding of most audio and video formats. This allows it to be used for transcoding of many types of media into more common formats. While it's not something that I do every day, it is something that I do on occasion on the command line for very specific things, such as indirectly with YouTube DL. When I want to make sure that something that I download will be in MP3 format or directly when I want to convert to something that a PSP can use, or if I want to batch converts videos before sending them off to a Raspberry Pi version of Plex so that the Pi is not burdened with transcoding. Just mix with a little bit of cron and some rsync and your files will magically appear in your Plex server. Let me know if uh, you guys want me to actually go over that type of build it mostly has to do with uh, cron and file locations, and I can walk you through step-by-step step on setting something like that up. Honestly, in doing my research for this, I'm seeing a lot of different uses and definitions for what MPEG, FFmpeg is and for what it does. Um, <clears throat> for some creative uses directly on the command line. Uh, I mean... I did, by the way, uh, put a link in the show notes on Fabrice Bellard and all the various things he has done. He's been a very important person in the Linux community. Yeah, I think he even he used a pseudonym when he did FFmpeg, but um, I did not record that here. Okay. 
Now, for some creative uses directly on the command line with FFmpeg, uh, I mean, you can use FFmpeg to do screen captures and convert them to PNG using X11 Grab, or take um, video captures of the desktop with lossless audio. It's perfect for creating tutorials for later dissemination so you don't have to keep re-explaining the same thing over again. And I do have an example here using um, FFmpeg, X11 Grab, and setting the video size, the frame rate, uh, telling it which display to use, um, which audio to use, and uh, how, how to set up the output. Um, now this is something I could see us on the Mintcast using to create like our audio editing tutorials for whomever we convince to uh, work on them next. We could split it up into multiple videos for different things that we do, and then as those things change over time, we can replace the old sections with new sections. It just seems like a very convenient way to do things, because I know um, a lot of people have complained in the past in looking for, you know, like screen capture for um, doing that type of tutorial, it actually gets hard to find them. Um, programs that actually work well. So I, I did test this out. It does work really well to just um, do it yourself. Um, or we can use the command line to capture from a webcam. And I, I did test that out as well and that worked really, it, it just is really cool, um, which I can already see ways to use in conjunction with like a motion sensor or in a garage like security device on a Pi or a mini PC or maybe something to uh, set up on a drone running a Pi. And um, I do have a command here in the command line. And I was hoping um, when I tested it that it like wouldn't turn on the, the little light on the camera. But of course it did. And then, you know, you're, <laughs> you're setting the size and the video source. And um, I think there's even a way to, yeah, set up the, uh, the audio from it. And then um, you set up the output. Um, with some command line foo, you can set it up to do just a, you know, short clip over time, you know, 30 seconds or whatever, if it sees motion. Granted, there's already the uh, motion application, which will do the exact same thing, but this is building it yourself. And then you can um, set it up to send emails to yourself and just... <clears throat> Um, whatever 30 second video just email it to like your Gmail or whatever and then it's immediately accessible to you and it gives you alerts on your phone now um, in the past with FFmpeg I've used it in conjunction with YouTube DL and some automation as a replacement for RSS feeds when YouTube was trying to make that difficult um, uh, I even I think I brought that on the show once and did a full explanation of um, my entire automation setup with that when uh, YouTube got rid of RSS. Um, and I do show um, the command that I used specifically with some modifications there um, to make it a bit more generic. And then um, um, because it was done through cron, I did need to use the full path to the um, command to YouTube DL. And then the portions that use the uh, FFmpeg is everything related to recoding the video um, specifically. And it, it worked really well while I was using it. It would download it, it would convert it to, to MP4 or, and uh, output it to the proper location so that it just showed up like my RSS feeds had been before that. 
Um, now, like I said, I also used it to transcode videos so that they could be watched on my uh, little PSPs, which don't really have the ability to play anything other than the, the correct format because they were designed to play it from UMD. Um, you can get things to, to play from the card, but it has to be at exactly the right format, the right size, the right frame rate, and everything else. And the only way to really get that um, is, you know, with, with FFmpeg and doing it yourself. So you take a video, um, you toss it into FFmpeg, you set the, uh, the bit rate, uh, the video codec. Um, uh, I even have the, the frame rate set here. Uh, at 29.97, it's uh, 480 by 272 um, size. I'm even adjusting the audio codec and uh, the frequency for the audio codec. Um, and, and just everything basically has to be set in order to, to get it to play correctly on the PSP. And I have an example of that in the show notes. Um, Adjusting the video size, the frame rate, the audio codec, basically everything about the video so that it would play, prop, play, play properly on a small screen. Um, now, other things you can do. Uh, oh, gosh. I hate it. It keeps jumping around, Moss. Other things you can do. You can strip the audio out of a video clip um, to ma manipulate it, separate it, and then add it back into the video. It can be very useful, although that it is something that we, we normally let a front end do for us. Um, it's also something that you can do with like YouTube DL. So um, when you just want to get the audio. So like in the past, I did it for Mintcast when something happened with our Audacity recordings. And we still needed to output a show. And we were outputting to YouTube. <coughs> I think it was like one of the first times we would output to YouTube. And I used YouTube DL to just pull the audio and um, then I manipulated that, and then that became the, or went out to our RSS feed. But um, it's extremely useful if you have like um, listenable audio, or listenable podcasts, but you, it also has a video component, but you just want to strip out the audio and then put that into a player. So yeah, it is useful for that. Um, now, evidently you can also use it to convert video clips um, to a GIF which I think would be really cool. I've never used that, but uh, it's definitely something I'd, I wouldn't mind trying out in the future. Um, but the most simple, you can convert one video type to another. I have included a, the simplest example of that, which is FFMP, FFmpeg, and then TACI, and then the name of the input file, and then the name of the input output file with the, uh, the different extension. Now, it can also be used for streaming, which um, I wasn't really aware of. Um, FFmpeg can stream one of two ways, either to some other server, which then restreams it to multiple other clients, or it can stream uh, UDP, TCP directly to a receiver or um, a multicast destination. Now, commonly you would use either FF server or VLC, for the reception and or uh, rebroadcast. <clears throat> uh, plus, uh, there are so many other things that you can do with this that I have not mentioned here. You know, if you guys want to send in and tell us what your favorite way to use FFmpeg is, um, really happy to hear it. But basically, if you're so inclined, you can forego a lot of the various front ends out there and do uh, everything your, yourself from the command line. Not something that um, I would necessarily recommend, 
but I love that this tool exists and it's used to create all those front ends. I also like that I don't need to install them for you know just one thing that I want to do. And I also like the fact that since it's a command line tool and well documented, I can uh, create my own automation using it. Now, I had also thought that I had used FFmpeg to um, do some audio conversion in the past for specific audiobooks that were like in the Apple format that I needed to convert to something, you know, uh, less proprietary and more usable. But it turned out that there was another one called uh, Fade, F-A-A-D, that I had been using for that. So very similar, but specifically for audio. I want to mention for our listeners that for the past few months, you've heard Joe or Bill or even me complain about the script jumping around on the screen. Yeah. We have left the Google ecosystem. It didn't do it nearly as badly in Google, but we are now using Collabora on our um, uh, Nextcloud server, and it does that quite a bit. Uh, I if you correct anything, then everyone else's screen jumps around a lot and it doesn't go back to where it was. Or in my case, I have it, uh, have all the text shift to the left and I have to do something to make it get back into the middle of the screen where it should be. But we are doing our best to leave the Google ecosystem and have currently done so, but we do complain about it from time to time. It does leave us rather dependent on Bill. It does. And Bill isn't here today. Um, Anyhow, that about ends it for what we had to talk about. I know nothing. I never have known anything. You guys just like having me around, so I keep coming back. Well, have you used FFmpeg for anything yourself? Not as a front, not as its own thing. Uh, obviously, I've used most of the things that it uh, is a back end to. Right, right. Well, yeah, you've used Audacity, so. Yeah, and uh, um, VLC and all that stuff. It's just something that I really enjoy. Now, you had a couple of other things that um, we had talked about before the show, possibly bringing to the innards if the innards didn't end up long enough. Well, I shoved them down in to check this out so we can do that. Okay. Uh, in terms of moving on, vibrations from the ether, no one loves us. Please send us your emails or comments or something that you want us to talk about. We have Telegram, we have Discord, we have MeWe, we have everything. No one's using MeWe, I've noticed. Our MeWe page is mostly just me me announcing when I've released one of my other podcasts. Mm. No, um, well, like one of the shows when we were talking about like Android, um, I had heavily used the, um, <coughs> the Discord chat and the things that people have provided there. And that, that I thought that was, you know, really fun to do. Just taking everything from the community that they said that they used on Android and having that as part of the innards, actually. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. we, we do take in what you guys tell us. And we would also like to have someone else on the show. Two, three people. We, we've had as many as eight people on this show. And when it gets down to two, you have to listen to us do a quick show. Yeah, we, we need more hosts. We need fresh blood. New ideas. Okay, and check this out. There were two articles we read this week which we felt needed more attention, but that we were not fully qualified to discuss. The next Debian slash Ubuntu releases will no longer allow PIP install outside an envi a virtual environment. No. And um, 
I've got that article here somewhere. Yeah, yeah there we go. Links there. Now, my whole thing here is, is, yeah, I do use pip to install things on occasion. Um, but what I want to say on this is it really feels like Ubuntu is really trying to lock things down. Is this coming from Debian or is this coming from um, Ubuntu specifically again? Because between... Um, it says Debian and Ubuntu. Okay. Let's see. Uh, the change is already live in Debian testing and Ubuntu 23.04 Lunar Lobster. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it just feels like things are getting locked down a little. And ugh. This seems to be a Debian thing, though. Yeah. Ubuntu has to go along with it because they get it from Debian. Right. Well, which means that Mint's going to have to go along with it, too. Yeah. But um, I, I don't know. I was using pip to install YouTube DL because that's the only way to really get the uh, most recent version. So. Well, make no mistake. You can break things using pip pretty oh, yeah. easily. Yeah. But if you couldn't break things, then it wouldn't be Linux. Okay. The other article says Docker is deleting open source organizations. And it's a blog post. We have it linked in the show notes. Uh, it's from... Someone who used to be uh, and may still be really deeply involved in uh, Docker, but he thinks that they're making it to where uh, it says, Yesterday, Docker sent an email to any Docker Hub user who had created an organization telling them their account will be deleted, including all images if they do not upgrade to a paid team plan. And the paid team plans cost $420 US per year paid monthly. So that this could be very damaging to the open source community. And if it impacts you, you might want to read the article and we do have it linked. Yeah, I really don't have anything to add to that one. Okay. Well, let's move on then. Housekeeping and announcements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mintcast. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit, chat with us on Telegram and Discord, or post directly at, at mintcast.org. Our next episode, it will be 2 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. We'll just be missing the April Fool's Day problem. Uh, you can get that converted to your time zone in a link in the show notes. Our next roundtable live stream is 2 p.m. on Saturday, March 25th. And you can get that time converted to your time zone, a link in the show notes. Livestream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. So wrapping up, where can we find more of you, Joe? Well, I'm on a couple other podcasts. You can catch me on the Linux Link Tech Show, which is at um, tllts.org. Uh, the Linux Lugcast, which is linuxlugcast.com. You can send me an email directly, jb at mincast.org, or you can buy me a coffee on Kofi. Moss? Well, you'll find me on Full Circle Weekly News every week, uh, Distro Hoppers Digest. We are supposed to be monthly, but it works out to like 10 a year. Uh, Bard Moss at pm.me, and all my other information, including my Mastodon, is at itsmoss.com. Bill didn't make it today, and we're uh, in mourning for him. No, not quite mourning, but we are def definitely in sympathy for him. Bill at mintcast.org, Bill underscore H on Discord, at WCHauser3 at Fostodon.org on Mastodon, uh, at WCHauser3 on Twitter, and WCHauser3 on Facebook. 
Also, he has other podcast links, OTC and Three Fat Truckers. Those links are also in the show notes. Before we leave, we wanted to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Bill for our audio editing, archive.org for our audio files, Hobstar for our logo, InitRD for the animated Discord logo, Londoner for our time sinks, and Bill for hosting the Pi 400, which runs our website, website maintenance, and the next cloud server on which we host our show notes and raw audio. And the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Thanks Clem. Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the